Chapter 4 of The Tale of Terror, A Study of the Gothic Romance, by Edith Burkhead. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 4, The Novel of Terror, Lewis and Maturin. To pass from the work of Mrs. Radcliffe to that of Matthew Gregory Lewis is to leave the novel of suspense, which depends for part of its effect on the human instinct of curiosity, for the novel of terror, which works almost entirely on the even stronger and more primitive instinct of fear. Those who find Mrs. Radcliffe's unruffled pace leisurely beyond endurance, or dislike her coldly reasonable methods of accounting for what is only apparently supernatural, or who sometimes feel stifled by the oppressive air of gentility that broods over her romantic world, will find ample reparation in the melodramatic pages of Monk Lewis. Here, indeed, may those who will and dare sup full with horrors. Lewis, in reckless abandonment, throws to the winds all restraint, both moral and artistic, that had bound his predecessor. The incidents which follow one another in kaleidoscopic variety are like the disjointed phrases of a delirium or nightmare, from which there is no escape. We are conscious that his story is unreal or even ludicrous, yet Lewis has a certain dogged power of driving us unrelentingly through it regardless of our own will. Literary historians have tended to overemphasize the connection between Mrs. Radcliffe and Lewis. Their purposes and achievement are so different that it is hardly accurate to speak of them as belonging to the same school. It is true that in one of his letters, Lewis asserts that he was induced to go on with his romance, The Monk, by reading The Mysteries of Adolfo, quote, one of the most interesting books that has, sick, ever been written, end quote, and that he was struck by the resemblance of his own character to that of Montoni but his literary debt to Mrs. Radcliffe is comparatively insignificant. His depredations on German literature are much more serious and extensive. Lewis, indeed, is one of the Dick Turpins of fiction and seizes his booty where he will, in a high-handed and somewhat unscrupulous fashion. But for many of Mrs. Radcliffe's treasures he could find no use. Her picturesque backgrounds, her ingenious explanations of the uncanny, her uneventful interludes and long-deferred but happy endings were outside his province. The moments in her novels, which Lewis admired and strove to emulate, were those during which the reader, with quickened pulse, breathlessly awaits some startling development. Of these moments there are, it must be frankly owned, few in Mrs. Radcliffe's novels. Lewis's mistake lay in trying to induce a more rapid palpitation and to prolong it almost uninterruptedly through his novel. By attempting a physical and mental impossibility, he courts disaster. Mrs. Radcliffe's skeletons are decently concealed in the family cupboard. Lewis's stalk abroad in shameless publicity. In Mrs. Radcliffe's stories, the shadow fades and disappears, just when we think we are close upon the substance. For, after we have been long groping in the twilight of fearful imaginings, she suddenly jerks back the shutter to admit the clear light of reason. In Lewis's wonder world, there are no elusive shadows. He hurls us without preparation or initiation into a daylight orgy of horrors. Lewis was educated at Westminster and Christ Church, but a year spent in Weimar, 1792-93, where he zealously studied German and, incidentally, met Goethe, seems to have left more obvious marks on his literary career. To Lewis, Goethe is preeminently the author of The Sorrows of Werther, and Schiller, he remarks casually, quote, has written several other plays besides The Robbers, end quote. 
He probably read Heinz's Arding Hello, 1787, Tieck's Abdullah, 1792-93, and William Lovell, 1794-96. Many of the innumerable dramas of Kotzebue, the romances of Vet Weber, and other specimens of what Carlyle describes as the bowl and dagger department, where, quote, black forests and lubberland, sensuality and horror, the spectre nun and the charmed moonshine shall not be wanting. Boisterous outlaws also with huge whiskers, and most catamount aspect, tear-stained sentimentalists, the grimiest man-eaters, ghosts and the like suspicious characters, will be found in abundance. End quote. Throughout his life, he seems to have made a hobby of the literature that arouses violent emotion and mental excitement, or lacerates the nerves, or shocks and startles. The lifelike and the natural are not powerful enough for his taste, though some of his romantic tales, 1808, such as My Uncle's Garret Window, are uncommonly tame. Like the painter of a hoarding who must at all costs arrest attention, he magnifies, exaggerates and distorts. Once, when rebuked for introducing blackguards into a country where they did not exist, he is said to have declared that he would make them sky blue if he thought they would produce any more effect. Referring to the monk, he confesses, quote, Unluckily in working it up, I thought that the stronger my colours, the more effect would my picture produce. End quote. One of his early attempts at fiction was a romance, which he later converted into his popular drama, The Castle Spectre. This play was staged in 1798 and was reconverted by Miss Sarah Wilkinson in 1820 into a romance. Lewis spreads his banquet with a lavish hand and crudities and absurdities abound, but he has a knack of choosing situations well adapted for stage effect. The play, aptly described by Coleridge as a piquant thing of noise, froth and impermanence, would offer a happy hunting ground to those who delight in the pursuit of parallel passages. At the age of twenty, during his residence at The Hague as an attaché to the British Embassy in the summer of 1794, he composed in ten weeks his notorious romance, The Monk. On its publication in 1795, it was attacked on the grounds of profanity and indecency. The Monk, despite its cleverness, is essentially immature. Yet it is not a childish work. It is much less youthful, for instance, than Shelley's Zastrozzi and St. Irvine. The inflamed imagination, the violent exaggeration of emotion and character, the jeering cynicism and lack of tolerance, the incoherent formlessness are all indications of adolescence. In The Monk, there are two distinct stories loosely related. The story of Raymond and Agnes, in which the legends of the bleeding nun and wandering Jew are woven with considerable skill, was published more than once as a detached and separate work. It is concerned with the fate of two unhappy lovers who are parted by the tyranny of their parents and of the church, and who endure manifold agonies. The physical torture of Agnes is described in revolting detail, for Lewis has no scruple in carrying the ugly far beyond the limits within which it is artistic. The happy ending of their harrowing story is incredible. By making Ambrosio on the verge of his hideous crimes harshly condemn Agnes for a sin of the same nature as that which he is about to commit, Lewis forges a link between the two stories. But the connection is superficial, and the novel suffers through the distraction of our interest. In the story of Ambrosio, Antonia plays no part in her own downfall. She is as helpless as a plaster statue, demolished by an earthquake. The figure of Matilda has more vitality. Though Lewis changes his mind about her character during the course of the book, and fails to make her early history consistent with the ending of his story. She is certainly not in league with the devil, when, in a passionate soliloquy, she cries to Ambrosio, whom she believes to be asleep, quote, 
time will come when you will be convinced that my passion is pure and disinterested then you will pity me and feel the whole weight of my sorrows but when the devil appears he declares to ambrosio quote, i saw that you were virtuous from vanity not principle and i seized the fit moment for your seduction i observed your blind idolatry at the madonna's picture i bade a subordinate but crafty spirit assume a similar form and you eagerly yielded to the blandishments of matilda End quote. the discrepancy is obvious but this blemish is immaterial for the whole story is unnatural the deterioration of ambrosio's character although lewis uses all his energy in striving to make it appear probable by discussing the effective environment is too swift lewis is at his best when he lets his youthful high spirits have full play his boyish exaggeration makes leonella antonia's aunt seem like a pantomime character who has inadvertently stepped into a melodrama but the caricature is amusing by its very crudity she writes in red ink to express quote, the blushes of her cheek end quote, when she sends a message of encouragement to the conde ossori this and other puerile jests are more tolerable than lewis's attempts to depict passion or describe character bold flaunting splashes of colour strongly marked passionate faces exaggerated gestures start from every page and his style is as extravagant as his imagery sometimes he uses a short staccato sentence to reinforce his point but more often we are engulfed in a swirling welter of words he delights in the declamatory language of the stage and all his characters speak as if they were behind the footlights shouting to the gallery a cold-blooded reviewer in whom the detective instinct was strong indicated the sources of the monk so mercilessly that lewis appears in his critique rather as the perpetrator of a series of ingenious thefts than as the creator of a novel Quote, the outline of the monk ambrosio's story was suggested by that of the santon barissa open bracket barcissa close bracket in the guardian the form of temptation is borrowed from the devil in love by canzot open bracket Kazot, close bracket and the catastrophe is taken from the sorcerer the adventures of raymond and agnes are less obviously imitations yet the forest scene near strasbourg brings to mind an incident in smollett's count fathom the bleeding nun is described by the author as a popular tale of the germans and the convent prison resembles the inflictions of mrs radcliffe the industrious reviewer overlooks the legend of the wandering jew which might have been added to the list of lewis's borrowings it must be admitted that lewis transforms or at least remodels what he borrows addison's story relates how a sage of reputed sanctity seduces and slays a maiden brought to him for cure and later sells her soul lewis abandons the oriental setting converts the santon into a monk and embroiders the story according to his fancy scott alludes to a scottish version of what is evidently a widespread legend the resemblance of the catastrophe presumably the appearance of satan in the form of lucifer to the scene in mickle's sorcerer which was published among lewis's tales of wonder eighteen o one is vague enough to be accidental there are blue flames and sorcery and an apparition in both but that is all the two scenes have in common the tyrannical abbess may be a heritage from the romance of the forest but if so she is exaggerated almost beyond recognition in fashioning as the villain of her latest novel the italian a monk whose birth is wrapped in obscurity mrs radcliffe may have been influenced by lewis's monk which had appeared two years before both shendoni and ambrosio are reputed saints both are plunged into the blackest guilt and both are victims of the inquisition mrs radcliffe it is true recoils from introducing the enemy of mankind but 
before the secrets are finally revealed, we almost suspect Shindoni of having dabbled in the black arts, and his actual crime falls short of our expectations. The explained supernatural plays a less prominent part in the Italian than in the previous novels, and Mrs. Radcliffe relies for her effect rather on sheer terror. The dramatic scene, when Shindoni stealthily approaches the sleeping Elena at midnight, recalls the more highly coloured but less impressive scene in Antonia's bedchamber. The fate of Bianchi, Elena's aunt, is strangely reminiscent of that of Elvira, Antonia's mother. The convent scenes and the overbearing abbess have been introduced into Mrs. Radcliffe's earlier novels, but in the Italian, the anti-Roman feeling is more strongly emphasised than usual. This may or may not have been due to the influence of Lewis. There is no direct evidence that Mrs. Radcliffe had read The Monk, but the book was so notorious that a fellow novelist would be almost certain to explore its pages. Hoffman's romance, Elixir des Tufels, 1816, is manifestly written under its inspiration. Coincidence could not account for the remarkable resemblances to incidents in the story of Ambrosio. The far-famed collection of Tales of Terror appeared in 1799, the Tales of Wonder in 1801. The rest of Lewis's work consists mainly of translations and adaptions from the German. He reveled in the horrific school of melodrama. He delighted in the kind of German romance parodied by Meredith in Farina, where Aunt Lisbeth tells Margarita of spectres smelling of murder and the charnel breath of midnight who uttered noises that wintered the blood and revealed sights that stiffened hair three feet long eye and kept it stiff. The Bravo of Venice, 1805, is a translation of Jockey's Abellino de Gros Bandit. But Lewis invented a superfluous character, Monaldeschi, Rosabella's destined bridegroom, apparently with the object that Abellino might slay him early in the story, and added a concluding chapter. At the outset of the story, Rosalvo, a man after Lewis's own heart, declares, quote, To astonish is my destiny. Rosalvo knows no medium. Rosalvo can never act like common men, end quote, and thereupon proceeds to prove by his extraordinary actions that this is no idle vaunt. He lives a double life. In the guise of Abellino, he joins the banditti, and by inexplicable methods, rids Venice of her enemies. In the guise of a noble Florentine, Flodoardo, he woos the doge's daughter, Rosabella. The climax of the story is reached when Flodoardo, under oath to deliver up the bandit Abellino, appears before the doge at the appointed hour and reveals his double identity. He is hailed as the saviour of Hungary and wins Rosabella as his bride. In the second edition of the Bravo of Venice, a romance in four volumes by M. G. Lewis, Legends of the Nunnery is announced as in the press. There seems to be no record of it elsewhere. Feudal Tyrants, 1806, a long romance from the German, connected with the story of William Tell, consists of a series of memoirs loosely strung together in which the most alarming episode is the apparition of the pale spectre of an aged monk. In Blanche and Osbright, or Mistrust, 1808, which is not avowedly a translation, Lewis depicts an even more revolting portrait than that of Abellino in his bravo's disguise. He adds detail after detail without considering the final effect on the eye. Quote, Every muscle in his gigantic form seemed convulsed by some horrible sensation. The deepest gloom darkened every feature, the wind from the unclosed window agitated his raven locks, and every hair appeared to writhe itself. His eyeballs glared, his teeth chattered, his lips trembled, and yet a smile of satisfied vengeance played horribly around them. His complexion seemed suddenly to have changed to the dark tincture of an African. 
the expression of his countenance was dreadful was diabolical magdalena as she gazed upon his face thought she gazed upon a demon End quote. here to quote the lady hysterica bellamore we have surely the quote, horrid horrible horridest horror End quote. but in canning's mark the robber or the terror of bohemia eighteen eighteen lewis's cast includes an enormous yellow-eyed spider a wolf who changes into a peasant and disappears amid a cloud of sulphur and a ghost who sheds three ominous drops of boiling blood it was probably such stories as this that peacock had in mind when he declared through mr flosky that the devil had become quote, too base and popular unquote, for the surfeited appetite of readers of fiction yet as carlyle once exclaimed of the german terror drama as exemplified in kotzebue grillparzer and klingerman whose stock in trade is similar to that of lewis quote, if any man wished to amuse himself irrationally here is the where for his money End quote. byron who had himself attempted in oscar and alva hours of idleness eighteen o seven a ballad in the manner of lewis describes with irony the triumphs of terror o oh, wonder-working lewis monk or bard who fain would make parnassus a churchyard lo wreaths of you not laurel bind thy brow thy muse a sprite apollo's sexton thou whether on ancient tombs thou takest thy stand by gibbering spectres hailed thy kindred band or tracest chaste depictions on thy page to please the females of our modest age all hail m p from whose infernal brain thin-sheeted phantoms glide a grisly train at whose command grim women throng in crowds and kings of fire of water and of clouds with small grey men wild jaegers and what not to crown with honour thee and walter scott again all hail if tales like thine may please st luke alone can vanquish the disease even satan's self with thee might dread to dwell and in thy skull discern a deeper hell End quote scott's delightfully discursive review of the fatal revenge or the family of montorio eighteen ten not only forms a fitting introduction to the romances of maturin but presents a lively sketch of the fashionable reading of the day it has been insinuated that the quarterly review was too heavy and serious that it contained to quote scott's own words quote, none of those light and airy articles which a young lady might read while her hair was papering End quote to redeem the reputation of the journal scott gallantly undertook to review some of the quote, flitting and effervescent productions of the times End quote. after a laborious inspection of the contents of a hamper full of novels he arrived at the painful conclusion that quote, spirits and patience may be as completely exhausted in perusing trifles as in following algebraic calculations End quote. he condemns the authors of the gothic romance not for their extravagance a venal offence but for their monotony a deadly sin quote, we strolled through a variety of castles each of which was regularly called il castello met with as many captains of condottieri heard various ejaculations of santa maria and diablo read by a decaying lamp and in a tapestried chamber dozens of legends as stupid as the main history examined such suites of deserted apartments as might set up a reasonable barrack and saw as many glimmering lights as would make a respectable illumination it was no easy task to bore sir walter scott and an excursion into the byways of early nineteenth-century fiction proves abundantly the justice of his satire 
such novelists as miss sarah wilkinson or mrs eliza parsons whose works were greedily devoured by the circulating library readers a hundred years ago deliberately concocted an unappetizing gallimaufry of earlier stories and practised the harmless deception of serving their insipid dishes under new and imposing names a writer in the annual review so early as eighteen o two complains in criticising tales of superstition and chivalry quote, it is not one of the least objections against these fashionable fictions that the imagery of them is essentially monstrous hollow winds clay-cold hands clanking chains and clicking clocks with a few similar etc are continually tormenting us End quote. tales of terror were often issued in the form of sixpenny chapbooks enlivened by woodcuts daubed in yellow blue red and green embellished with these aids to the imagination they were sold in thousands to readers of a century ago a blue book meant as medwin explains in his life of shelley not a pamphlet filled with statistics but a sixpenny shocker the notorious minerva press catered for wealthier patrons and it is said sold two thousand copies of mrs bennett's beggar girl and her benefactors on the day of publication at thirty-six shillings for the seven volumes samuel rogers recalled lane the head of the firm riding in a carriage and pair with two footmen wearing gold cockades scott was careful not to disclose the names of the novelists he derided but his hamper probably contained a selection of mrs parson's sixty works and perhaps two of miss wilkinson's with their alluring titles the priory of st clare or the spectre of the murdered nun the convent of the grey penitents or the apostate nun perchance he found there mrs henrietta rouvere's romance published in the same year as montorio a peep at our ancestors eighteen o seven describing the reign of king stephen mrs rovier in her preface quote, flatters herself that aided by records and documents she may have succeeded in a correct though faint sketch of the times she treats and in affording if through a dim yet not distorted nor discoloured glass a peep at our ancestors End quote but her story is entirely devoid of the colour with which mrs radcliffe her model contrived to decorate the past it is moreover written in a style so opaque that it obscures her image from view as effectually as a piece of ground glass to describe the approach of twilight an hour beloved by writers of romance she attempts a turgid paraphrase of gray's elegy quote, the grey shades of an autumnal evening gradually stole over the horizon progressively throwing a duskier hue on the surrounding objects till glimmering confusion encompassing the earth shut from the accustomed eye the well-known view leaving conjecture to mark its boundaries the adventures of adelaide and her lover walter of gloucester are so insufferably tedious that scott doubtless decided to leave to conjecture their interminable vicissitudes the names of other novels whose pages he may have impatiently scanned may be garnered by those who will from such works as living authors eighteen seventeen or from the four volumes of Watt's elaborate compilation, the Bibliotheca Britannia, 1824. The titles are indeed lighter and more entertaining reading than the books themselves. Anyone might reasonably expect to read Midnight Horrors or The Bandit's Daughter, as Henry Tilney vows he read The Mysteries of Adolfo, with hair on end all the time. But the actual story, notwithstanding a wandering ball of fire, that acts as guide through the labyrinths of a Gothic castle, is conducive of sleep rather than shudders. The notoriety of Lewis's monk may be estimated by the procession of monks which follow in his train. There were, to select a few names at random, The New Monk by one R. S. Esquire, The Monk of Madrid by George Moore, 1802, The Bloody Monk of Adolfo 
by T.J. Horsley Curtis, Manfroni, the one-handed monk, whose history was borrowed, together with those of Albolino, the terrific Bravo, and Rinaldo Rinaldini, by J.J. from Miss Flinders' library, and last, as a counter-picture, a monk without a scowl, the benevolent monk by Theodore Melville, the nuns, including Rosa Matilda's Nun of St. Omer's, Miss Sophia Francis's Nun of Misericordia, 1807, and Miss Wilkinson's Apostate Nun, would have sufficed to people a convent. Perhaps the convent of the Grey Penitents would have been a suitable abode for them. But most of them were, to quote Crabbe, girls no nunnery can tame. Lewis's Venetian Bravo was boldly transported to other climes. We find him in Scotland in The Mysterious Bravo, or The Shrine of St. Ulstus, a Caledonian legend, and in Austria in The Bravo of Bohemia, or The Black Forest. No country is safe from the raids of banditti. The Caledonian banditti, or the banditti of the forest, or the banditti of Florence, all very much alike in their manners and morals, make the heroine's journey a perilous enterprise. The romances of Mrs. Radcliffe were rifled unscrupulously by the snappers-up of unconsidered trifles, and many of the titles are variations on hers. In emulation of the romance of the forest, we find George Walker's Romance of the Cavern, 1792, and Miss Eleanor Sleeth's Mysteries of the Forest. Novelists appreciated the magnetic charms of the word mystery on a title page, and after The Mysteries of Adolfo, we find such seductive names as Mysterious Warnings and Mysterious Visits by Mrs. Parsons, Horrid Mysteries, translated from the German of the Marquis von Gross by R. Will, 1796, The Mystery of the Black Tower, and The Mystic Sepulchre by John Palmer, a schoolmaster of Bath. The Mysterious Wanderer, 1807, by Miss Sophia Reeve. The Mysterious Hand, or Subterranean Horrors, 1811, by A.J. Randolph. And The Mysterious Freebooter, 1805, by Francis Latham. Castles and abbeys were so persistently haunted that Mrs. Rachel Hunter, a severely moral writer, advertises one of her stories as Letitia, a castle without a spectre. Mystery slips almost unawares into the domestic story. There are, for instance, vague hints of it, in Charlotte Smith's Old Manor House, 1793. The author of The Ghost and of More Ghosts adopts the pleasing pseudonym of Felix Phantom. The gloom of night broods over many of the stories, for we know, quote, Affairs that walk, as they say spirits do, at midnight, have in them a wilder nature than the business that seeks dispatch by day. End quote. And we are confronted with titles like Midnight Weddings by Mrs. Meek, one of Macaulay's favourite bad novel writers, The Midnight Bell, Awakening Memories of Duncan's Murder by George Walker, or The Nocturnal Minstrel, 1809, by Miss Sleeth. These, quote, dismal treaties, end quote, abound in reminiscences of Mrs. Radcliffe and of Monk Lewis, and many of them hark back as far as the castle of Otranto for some of their situations. The novels of Miss Wilkinson, may perhaps serve as well as those of any of her contemporaries to show that Scott was not unduly harsh in his condemnation of the romances fashionable in the first decade of the 19th century, when, quote, tales of terror jostle on the road, end quote. The sleeping potion, a boon to those who weave the intricate pattern of a Gothic romance, is one of Miss Wilkinson's favourite devices, and is employed in at least three of her stories. In the Chateau de Montville, 1803, it is administered to the amiable Louisa to aid Augustine in her sinister designs, but she ultimately escapes and is wedded by Octavius, who has previously been borne off by a party of pirates. He, quote, 
finds the past unfortunate vicissitudes of his life amply recompensed by her love in the convent of the grey penitents rosalthe happily avoids the opiate as she overhears the plans of her unscrupulous husband who it seems has quote, an unquenchable thirst of avarice end quote, and desires to win a wealthier bride she flees to a quote, cottage or knee end quote, on finchley common the home it may be remembered of thackeray's washerwoman and the thrills we expect from a novel of terror are reserved for the second volume and arise out of the adventures of the next generation after rosalthe's death spectres blue flames corpses thunderstorms and hairbreadth escapes are set forth in generous profusion in the priory of st clair eighteen eleven julietta who has been forced into a convent against her will like so many other heroines is drugged and conveyed as a corpse to the count de valve's gothic castle she comes to life only to be slain before the high altar and revenges herself after death by haunting the count regularly every night the fugitive countess or the convent of st ursula eighteen o seven contains three spicy ingredients a mock burial a concealed wife and a mouldering manuscript the social status of miss wilkinson's characters is invariably lofty for no self-respecting ghost ever troubles the middle classes and her manner is as ambitious as her matter her personages in lopez and aranthe behave and talk thus quote, heavenly powers exclaimed aranthe it is dorimont or else my eyes deceive me overpowered with surprise and almost breathless she sunk on the carpet lopez stood aghast his countenance was of a deadly pale a glass of wine he had in his hand he let fall to the floor while he articulated what an alteration in that once beauteous countenance miss wilkinson's sentences stagger and lurch uncertainly but she delights in similes and other ornaments of style quote, adeline barnett was as fair as a lily tall as the pine her fine dark eyes sparkling as diamonds and she moved with the majestic air of a goddess but pride and ambition appeared on the brow of this famed maiden and destroying the effect of her charms she is in fact more addicted to grammary than to grammar the fault with which byron in a note to english bards and scotch reviewers charged the hero and heroine of scott's lay of the last minstrel her heroes do not merely love they are Quote, enamoured to a romantic degree her arbors are quote, composed of jasmine white rose and other odiferous sweets of flora she sprinkles french phrases with an airy nonchalance worthy of the lady hysterica bellamore whose memoirs are included in barnett's heroine her duchesses figure away with eclat a party quarry assemble at their dejeun it is noteworthy that by eighteen twenty even miss wilkinson had learnt to despise the spectres in whom she had gloried during her amazing career in the spectre of landmere abbey eighteen twenty the ghost is ignominiously exposed and proved to be quote, a tall figure dressed in white with a long transparent veil flowing over her whole figure end quote. while the heroine amelia speaks almost in the accents of catherine morland quote, my governess has been affirming that there are gothic buildings without spectres or legends of a ghostly nature attached to them now what is a castle or abbey worth without such appendage 
do tell me candidly are none of the turrets of your old family mansion in monmouth rendered thus terrific by some unquiet wandering spirit dare the peasantry pass it after twilight or if they are forced into that temerity do not their teeth chatter their hair stand erect and their poor knees knock together End quote that miss wilkinson who for twenty years had conscientiously striven to chill her reader's blood should be compelled at last to turn round and gibe at her own spectres reveals into what a piteous plight the novel of terror had fallen when even the enchantress disavowed her belief in them the ghosts must surely have fled shrieking and affrighted and thought never more to raise their diminished heads from a medley of novels similar to those of miss wilkinson scott singled out for commendation the fatal revenge or the family of montorio by jasper dennis murphy or rev charles robert maturin amid the chaos of horror in which maturin hurls his readers scott shrewdly discerned the spirit and animation which though often misdirected pervade his whole work the story is but a grotesque distortion of life yet scott found himself quote, insensibly resolved in the perusal and at times impressed with no common degree of respect for the powers of the author end quote. his generous estimation of maturin's gifts and his prediction of future success is more impressive because the fatal revenge undeniably belongs to the very class of novels he was ridiculing maturin was an eccentric irish clergyman who devoted himself by weaving romances and constructing tragedies he loved to mingle with the gay and frivolous he affected foppish attire and prided himself on his exceptional skill in dancing his indulgence in literary work was probably but another expression of his longing to escape from the straight and narrow way prescribed for a protestant clergyman wild anecdotes are told of his idiosyncrasies he preferred to compose his stories in a room full of people and found a noisy argument especially invigorating to prevent himself from taking part in the conversation he used to cover his mouth with a paste composed of flour and water sometimes we are told he would wear a red wafer upon his brow as a signal that he was enduring the throes of literary composition and expected forbearance and consideration it is said that he once missed preferment in the church because he absent-mindedly interviewed his prospective vicar with his head bristling with quills like a porcupine he is said to have insisted on his wife using rouge though she had naturally a high colour and to have gone fishing in a resplendent blue coat and silk stockings such was the flamboyant personality of the man whose first novel attracted the kindly attention of scott his oddities which would have rejoiced the heart of dickens are not without significance in the study of his literary work for his love of emphasis and exaggeration are reflected both in the substance and style of his novels maturin's writings fall into three periods of his three early novels the fatal revenge or the family of montorio 1807 the wild irish boy 1808 and the milesian chief 1812 the first only is a tale of horror the wild irish boy is a domestic story and forms a suitable companion for lady morgan's wild irish girl the milesian chief is a historical novel and is now chiefly remembered on account of the likeness of the opening chapters to scott's bride of lammermoor 1819 after the publication of these novels maturin turned his attention to the stage his first tragedy bertram 1816 received the encouragement of scott and byron the character of bertram is modelled on that of schiller's robber-in-chief karl von moore who captivated the imagination of coleridge himself and who is reflected in osorio and perhaps in mrs radcliffe's villains the action of the melodrama moves swiftly and abounds in the moving situations maturin loved to handle 
bertram was succeeded in eighteen seventeen by manuel and in eighteen nineteen by fredolfo meanwhile maturin had returned to novel writing women or pour et contre with its lifelike sketches of puritanical society and clever characterization appeared in eighteen eighteen and was favourably reviewed by scott melmoth the wanderer maturin's masterpiece was published in eighteen twenty and was succeeded in eighteen twenty four by his last work the albigenses a historical romance following scott's design rather than that of mrs radcliffe in reviewing the family of montorio scott prudently attempted only a brief survey of the plot and forsook maturin's sequence of events in his sketch the outline of the story is comparatively clear in the novel itself we wander bewildered baffled and distracted through labyrinthine mazes no ariadne awaits on the threshold with the magic ball of twine to guide us through the complicated windings we stumble along blind alleys desperately retracing our weary steps and after stumbling alone and unaided to the very end reach the darkly concealed clue when it has ceased to be either of use or of interest to us many an adventurer must have laid down dispirited and exhausted without ever reaching this distant and elusive goal disentangled and simplified almost beyond recognition the story runs thus in sixteen seventy count orazio and his younger brother are the sole representatives of the family of montorio orazio has married erminia di vivaldi whom he loves devotedly she does not return his love the younger brother determines to take advantage of this circumstance to gain the title and estates for himself and succeeds in arousing orazio's jealousy against a young officer verdoni to whom erminia has formerly been deeply attached in a violent passion orazio slays verdoni before the eyes of arminia who falls dead at his feet this part of his design accomplished the younger brother plots to murder orazio himself who however discovers the innocence of his wife and the hideous perfidy of his brother temporarily bereft of reason orazio sojourns alone on a desert island when his senses are restored he resolves to devote the rest of his life to vengeance for fifteen years he buries himself in occult studies and when his diabolical schemes have matured returns disguised as the monk shimoli to the scene of the murder he becomes confessor to his brother who has assumed the title and estates it is his intention to compel the count's sons annibal and apolito to murder their father death at the hands of parricides seems to him the only appropriate catastrophe for the count's career of infamy to reconcile the two victims annibal and apolito to their task he quote, relies mainly on the doctrine of fatalism end quote. the most complex and ingenious machinery is used to work upon their superstitious feelings no device is too torturous if it aid his purpose even the pressure of the inquisition is brought to bear on one of the brothers each after protracted agony submits to his destiny and the swords of the two brothers meet in the count's body when the murder is safely accomplished it is proved that annibal and ippolito are the sons not of the count but of shimoli and erminia by the irony of fate the knowledge comes too late for shimoli to save his children from the crime at the close of a lengthy trial the two brothers are released but deprived of their lands ultimately they die fighting in the siege of barcelona shimoli perishes in the approved gothic manner by self-administered poison intertwined with the main theme of shimoli's fatal revenge are the love stories of the two brothers rosalia a nun who appears to have been acquainted with shakespeare's comedies disguises herself as a page and devotes her life to the service of Apollo, 
and the composition of sentimental verses she only just reveals her sex before her death though we have guessed it from her first appearance ildefonza who is beloved of annibal has been forced into a convent against her will a fate almost inevitable in the realm of gothic romance when letters are received authorising her release from the vows a pitiless mother superior reports that she is dead she is immured but an earthquake sets her free for maturin will move heaven and earth to effect his purposes the ill-fated maiden dies shortly afterwards ere the close it proves that ildefonza was the daughter of erminia who had been secretly married to verdoni before her union with Razio. such is the skeleton of maturin's story when its scattered members have been patiently collected and fitted together the impressive figure of Shimoli, with his unholy power of fascinating his reluctant accomplices lends to the book the only sort of unity it possesses but even he fails to arouse a sense of fear strong enough to fix our attention to so wandering a story like the doomed brothers we drift dejectedly through inexplicable terrors and we re-echo with fervour annibal's dolorous cry quote, why should i be shut up in this house of horrors to deal with spirits and damned things and the secrets of the infernal world while there are so many paths open to pleasure the varieties of human intercourse and the enjoyment of life maturin a disciple of mrs radcliffe feels it is his duty to explain away the apparently miraculous incidents in his story but he lacks the persevering ingenuity that partly compensates for his frauds on a single page he calmly discloses secrets which have harassed us for four volumes and his long deferred explanations are paltry and incredible the bleeding figures that wrought so painfully on the sensitive nerves of ippolito are merely waxen images that spout blood automatically disappearances and reappearances which seemed supernatural are simply affected by private exits and entrances other startling phenomena are accounted for in the same trivial fashion maturin seems to have crowded into his story nearly every character and incident that had been employed in earlier gothic romances Shimoli is a remarkably faithful portrait of mrs radcliffe's shudoni from beneath his cowl flash the piercing eyes whose very glance will daunt the bravest heart his sallow visage is furrowed with the traces of bygone passions he shuns society and is dreaded by his associates the oppressed maiden driven into a nunnery drugged and inured the ambitious countess the devoted loquacious servant the inhuman abbess all play their accustomed parts the background shifts from the robber's den to the ruined chapel from the castle vault to the dungeon of the inquisition each scene being admirably suited to the situation contrived or the emotion displayed maturin had accurately inspected the passages and trap-doors of otranto no item not a rusty lock not a creaking hinge had escaped his vigilant eye he knew intimately every nook and cranny of mrs radcliffe's gothic abbeys he had viewed with trepidation their blood-stained floors their skeletons and corpses and had carefully calculated the psychological effect of these properties he had gazed with staring eye into the lurid horrors of monk lewis and had carried away impressions so distinct that he perhaps unwittingly transferred them to the pages of his own story but maturin's reading was not strictly confined to the school of terror he had studied shakespeare's tragedies and these may have suggested to him the idea of enhancing the interest of his story by dissecting human motive and describing passionate feeling 
in depicting the remorse of the count and his wife zenobia who had committed a murder to gratify their ambition and who are tormented by ugly dreams maturin inevitably draws from macbeth zenobia the stronger character reviles her husband for indulging in sickly fancies and strives to embolden him Quote, like a child you run from a mask you yourself have painted End quote. he replies in a free paraphrase of hamlet quote, it is this cursed domestic sensibility of guilt that makes cowards of us all End quote. maturin is distinguished from the incompetent horde of romance writers whom scott condemned by the powerful eloquence of his style and by his ability to analyse emotion to write as if he himself was swayed by the feeling he describes his insane extravagances have at least the virtue that they come flaming hot from an excited imagination the passage quoted by scott Orazio's attempt to depict his state of mind after he heard of his brother's perfidy may serve to illustrate the force and vigour of his language quote, oh that midnight darkness of the soul in which it seeks for something whose loss has carried away every sense but one of utter and desolate deprivation in which it traverses leagues in motion and worlds in thought without consciousness of relief yet with a dread of pausing i had nothing to seek nothing to recover the whole world could not restore me an atom could not show me again a glimpse of what i had been or lost yet i rushed on as if the next step would reach shelter and peace melmoth the wanderer has found many admirers it fascinated rossetti thackeray and miss mitford it was praised by balzac who wrote a satirical sequel melmoth reconcile a la anglaise eighteen thirty five and by baudelaire and exercised a considerable influence on french literature it consists of a series of tales strung together in a complicated fashion in each tale the wanderer who has bartered his soul in return for prolonged life may if he can persuade someone to take the bargain off his hands he visits those who are plunged in despair his approach is heralded by strange music and his eyes have a preternatural lustre that terrifies his victims no one will agree to his incommunicable condition the bird's-eye view of an edinburgh reviewer who described a melmoth as the sacrifice of genius in the temple of false taste will give some idea of the bewildering variety of its contents Quote, his hero is a modern faustus who has bartered his soul with the powers of darkness for protracted life and unlimited worldly enjoyment his heroine a species of insular goddess a virgin calypso of the indian ocean who amid flowers and foliage lives upon figs and tamarinds associates with peacocks and monkeys is worshipped by the occasional visitants of her island finds her way into spain where she is married to the aforesaid hero by the hand of a dead hermit the ghost of a murdered domestic being the witness of her nuptials and finally dies in a dungeon of the inquisition at madrid to complete this phantasmagoric exhibition we are presented with sibyls and misers parasites maniacs in abundance monks with scourges pursuing a naked youth streaming with blood subterranean jews surrounded by the skeletons of their wives and children lovers blasted by lightning irish hags spanish grandees shipwrecks caverns donna claras and donna isadoras all exposed to each other in violent and glaring contrast and all their adventures narrated with the same undeviating display of turgent vehement and painfully elaborated language End quote. 
this breathless sentence gives some conception of the delirious imagery of maturin's romance but the book is worthy of a more respectful unhurried survey melmoth shows a distinct advance on montorio in constructive power each separate story is perfectly clear and easy to follow in spite of the elaborate interlacing the romance opens with the death of a miser in a desolate irish farmstead with harpies clustering at his bedside his nephew and heir john melmoth is adjured to destroy a certain manuscript and a portrait of an ancestor with eyes quote, such as one feels they wish they had never seen and feels they can never forget end quote. alone at midnight john melmoth reads the manuscript which is reputed to have been written by stanton an english traveller in spain about sixteen seventy six the document relates a startling story of a mysterious englishman who appears at a spanish wedding with disastrous consequences and reappears before stanton in a madhouse offering release on dreadful conditions after reading it john melmoth decides to burn the family portrait he is visited by a sinister form who proves that he is no figment of the imagination by leaving black and blue marks on his relative's wrist that night a ship is wrecked in a storm the wanderer appears and mocks the victims with fiendish mirth the sole survivor don alonzo moncada unfolds his story to john melmoth the son of a great duke he has been forced to become a monk to save his mother's honour he dwells with excruciating detail in which maturin is inclined to revel on the horrors of spanish monasteries escaping through a subterranean passage he is guided by a parricide who incidentally tells him a loathsome story of two immured lovers his plan of flight is foiled and he is borne off to the dungeons of the inquisition here the wanderer who has a miraculous power to enter where he will offers on the ineffable condition to procure his freedom moncada repudiates the temptation effects his own escape during a great fire and catches sight of the stranger on the summit of a burning building he takes refuge with a jew but to evade the vigilance of the inquisitors disappears suddenly down an underground passage where he finds adonijah another jew who obligingly employs him as an amanuensis and sets him to copy a manuscript this gives maturin the opportunity for which he has been waiting to introduce his tale of the indian the story of amali who is visited on her desert island by the wanderer in the guise of a lover as well as a tempter forms the most memorable part of melmoth in the other stories the stranger has been a taciturn creature relying on the lustre of his eyes rather than on his powers of eloquence to win over his victims to imali he pours forth floods of rhetoric on the sins and follies of mankind had she not been one of rousseau's children of nature and so innocent alike of knowledge of shakespeare and of the fault of impatience she would surely have exclaimed quote, if thou hast news i prithee deliver them like a man of this world End quote. when imali is transported to spain and resumes her baptismal name of isadora melmoth follows her and their conversations are continued at dead of night through the lattice here they discourse on the real nature of love at length the gloomy lover persuades isadora to marry him their midnight nuptials take place against a weird background by a narrow precipitous path they approach the ruined chapel and are united by a hand as cold as that of death meanwhile don francisco isadora's father on his way home spends the night at an inn where a stranger insists on telling him the tale of guzman in this tale the tempter visits a father whose family is starving but who resists the lure of wealth maturin portrays with extraordinary power the deterioration in the character of an old man valberg 
through the effects of poverty at the close of the narration don francisco falls into a deep slumber but is sternly awakened by a stranger with an awful eye who insists on becoming his fellow-traveller and on telling in defiance of protests yet another story the prologue to the lover's tale is almost chaucerian in its humour it was with the utmost effort of his mixed politeness and fear that he prepared himself to listen to the tale which the stranger had frequently amid their miscellaneous conversation alluded to and showed an evident anxiety to relate these allusions were attended with unpleasant reminiscences to the hearer but he saw that it was to be and armed himself as best he might with courage to hear i would not intrude on you senor said the senior with a narrative in which you can feel but little interest were i not conscious that its narration may operate as a warning the most awful salutary and efficacious to yourself at this veiled hint don francisco discharges a volley of oaths but he is silenced completely by the smile of the stranger quote, that spoke bitterer and darker things than the fiercest frown that had ever wrinkled the features of a man after this he cannot choose but to hear and the stranger seizes his opportunity to begin an uncommonly dull story connected with a shropshire family and intermingled with historical events in this tale the wanderer appears to a girl whose lover has lost his reason and offers to restore him if she will accept his conditions once more the tempter is foiled the story meanders so sluggishly that our sympathies are with don francisco and we cannot help wishing that he had adopted more drastic measures to quieten the insistent stranger at the conclusion francisco mutters indignantly quote, it is inconceivable to me how this person forces himself on my company harasses me with tales that have no more application to me than the legend of the cid and may be as apocryphal as the ballad of roncesvalles but yet the stranger has not finished he proceeds to tell him a tale in which he will feel a particular interest that of isadora his own daughter and finally urges him to hasten to her rescue don francisco wanders by easy stages to madrid and on his arrival marries isadora against her will to montilla melmoth according to promise appears at the wedding the bridegroom is slain isadora with melmoth's child ends her days in the dungeons of the inquisition murmuring paradise will he be there so far as one may judge from the close of the story it seems not moncada and john melmoth whom we left at the beginning of the romance in ireland are revisited by the wanderer whose time on earth has at last run out he confesses his failure quote, i have traversed the world in the search and no one to gain that world would lose his own soul his words remind us of the text of the sermon which suggested to maturin the idea of the romance like the companions of dr faustus melmoth and moncada hear terrible sounds from the room of the wanderer in the last throes of agony the next morning the room is empty but following a track to the sea-cliffs they see on a crag beneath the kerchief the wanderer had worn about his neck melmoth and moncada exchange looks of silent and unutterable horror and return slowly home this extraordinary romance like montorio clearly owes much to the novels of mrs radcliffe and monk lewis imali as her name implies is but a glorified emily with a loxia on her shoulder instead of a lute in her hand the monastic horrors are obviously a heritage from the monk the rosicrucian legend as handled in st leon may have offered hints to maturin whose treatment is however far more imaginative and impressive than that of godwin the resemblance of the legend of the wandering jew need not be laboured marlowe's dr faustus and the first part of goethe's faust leave their impression on the story 
the closing scenes inevitably remind us of the last act of marlowe's tragedy but when all these debts are acknowledged they do but serve to enhance the success of maturin who out of these varied strands could weave so original a romance melmoth is not an ingenious patchwork of previous stories it is the outpouring of a morbid imagination that has long brooded on the fearful and the terrific imbued with the grandeur and solemnity of his theme maturin endeavours to write in dignified stately language there are frequent lapses into bombast but occasionally his rhetoric is splendidly effective Quote, it was now the latter end of autumn heavy clouds had all day been passing laggingly and gloomily along the atmosphere as the hours pass over the human mind and life not a drop of rain fell the clouds went portentously off like ships of war reconnoitring a strong fort to return with added strength and fury he takes pleasure in coining unusual striking phrases such as quote, all colours disappear in the night and despair has no diary quote, or quote, minutes are hours in the noctuary of terror he takes pleasure in coining unusual striking phrases such as all colours disappear in the night and despair has no diary or minutes are hours in the noctuary of terror or the secret of silence is the only secret words are a blasphemy against the taciturn and invisible god whose presence enshrouds us in our last extremity maturin chooses his similes with discrimination to heighten the effect he aims at producing Quote, the locks were so bad and the keys so rusty that it was like the cry of the dead in the house when the keys were turned End quote. or quote, with all my care however the lamp declined quivered flashed a pale light like the smile of despair on me and was extinguished i had watched it like the last beatings of an expiring heart like the shivers of a spirit about to depart for eternity End quote there are no quiet scenes or motionless figures in melmoth everything is intensified exaggerated distorted the very clouds fly rapidly across the sky and the moon bursts forth with sudden and appalling effulgence of lightning a shower of rain is perhaps quote, the most violent that was ever precipitated on the earth end quote. when melmoth stamps his foot quote, the reverberation of his steps on the hollow and loosened stones almost contended with the thunder end quote maturin's use of words like callosity induration defecated evanition and his fondness for italics are other indications of his desire to force an impression by fair means or foul the gift of psychological insight that distinguishes montorio reappears in a more highly developed form in melmoth the wanderer emotions maturin declares are my events and he excels in depicting mental as well as physical torture the monotony of a timeless day is suggested with dreary reality in the scene where makada and his guide await the approach of night to effect their escape from the monastery the gradual surrender of resolution before slight reiterated assaults is cunningly described in the analysis of isadora's state of mind when hateful marriage is forced upon her occasionally maturin astonishes us by the subtlety of his thought Quote, while people think it worth while to torment us we are never without some dignity though painful and imaginary it is his faculty for describing intense passionate feelings his power of painting wild pictures of horror his gifts for conveying his thoughts in rolling rhythmical periods of eloquence that make melmoth 
a memory-haunting book. With all his faults, Maturin was the greatest, as well as the last, of the Goths. End of chapter 4. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.